What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, tracking the COVID-19 outbreak at the White House with Dr. Scott Gottlieb. I think there's a lot more that the White House staff could have done. They had a system in place where they basically were depending on testing alone to keep the president safe because they weren't taking adequate measures inside the White House compound. Discerning the president's condition with CNBC's Meg Terrell. Doctors that I spoke with over the weekend point out that an oxygen level of 94% or less, which as doctors said uh, the president reached twice in the last few days, does constitute severe COVID-19. And unpacking part of the president's treatment plan, an experimental antibody cocktail from Regeneron. Regeneron CEO Leonard Schleifer. Let me say that how proud Team Regeneron, uh, all of our employees are, to have worked so hard to get to a point where we can help the president and hopefully many other people. It's Monday, October 5th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Osorkin along with Joe Kernan and Melissa Lee. Becky is off today. President Trump remaining at Walter Reed Medical Center, now entering his third day of treatment. He briefly left his suite yesterday to greet supporters uh, from an at-a-distance, at least uh, inside his SUV. White House doctors say the president could return to the White House as early as today, although others questioning some seemingly conflicting comments that came around his health over the weekend and when he tested positive for the virus. Amy Javis has been tracking all of this moment by moment throughout the weekend, and he joins us this morning. Eamon, what's the latest? Yeah, good morning, Andrew. We did not get a lot of clarity over the weekend. Some new details from the White House medical team. Uh, They were at pains to paint an upbeat picture here about the president of the United States, suggesting that, as you say, he could go back to the White House as early as today. Now, that wouldn't be a discharge, as we think of in the traditional medical sense. You know, you're you're cured and you're freed from the hospital. This would be returning to the White House where they do have they also have elaborate medical facilities for further treatment. Uh, We'll wait and see whether that can happen. But meanwhile, the White House not providing providing uh, some key information here, including uh, when the president's last negative test was before Thursday. White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany was asked about that uh, yesterday, and here's what she said. Again, not giving a detailed readout of his testing, but um, safe to say his first positive test was upon return or at least after Bedminster that trip. Now, the White House had also initially suggested that it would provide numbers or details around how many White House aides had contracted the coronavirus. Now, though, uh, Kayleigh McEnany saying yesterday uh, the White House is no longer going to do that, citing privacy concerns. So no information from the White House on an aggregated basis about how many aides have contracted the virus at this point. And that uh, lines up with some of these shifting accounts that we've had uh, throughout the course of this episode, starting with Thursday when the president said he was tested and awaiting results. We do now know from the timeline that the president had an initial 
positive test before he appeared on the Hannity program on Thursday night and said he was still waiting for results. The president already knew at that point, according to the White House timeline, that he had at least once tested positive on an initial test. On Friday, uh, we saw the president tweeting at 12.54 a.m. that he had tested positive. That was Thursday night into Friday morning. Uh, Meadows, the chief of staff, telling reporters that the president uh, tweeted the results as soon as he got them. Now, on Saturday, the White House doctor said that they were 72 hours into the diagnosis, uh, but then later issued a clarification saying that the president was, in fact, first diagnosed with COVID-19 on October 1st. So some confusion over the timeline over the weekend, some confusion over whether or not the president had received oxygen on Friday. The White House medical team uh, ultimately admitting that the president did receive uh, oxygen on Friday after initially trying to dance around that subject. So some confusion around the president's overall health here, but doctors painting an upbeat picture yesterday, and we'll wait and see if they can, in fact, send him back to the White House later today. Andrew, back right. over to you. In terms of memos and notes going out to others, uh, being told about who has it, who doesn't, and how that works. How is that working? Uh, because we, we learned, I think, that, it, that, that notes were just sent out for the first time late yesterday. Yeah, that's right, uh, Andrew. And in fact, people I've talked to uh, who are familiar with what's going on inside the White House compound right now are frustrated at the lack of communication that they've had, virtually no guidance once this began as to what they should do and where they should go. And that squares with a White House that, you know, through the entire course of the summer, uh, was really not engaging in protective measures to, to any great degree. I mean, people inside the White House, uh, where the confines are really cramped, the halls are narrow, the offices are small, there's a lot of people piled in there. Uh, they were just not wearing masks, not social distancing. Uh, there was some testing uh, early on, but even uh, for the reporters who go into the compound, they backed that off during the course of the summer and got actually less stringent as the months went on. And now there's uh, some concern around people who are familiar with the, what's happening inside the White House, that there just has not been enough communication, no orders about what to do, where to go, how to handle all this uh, until maybe uh, as late as yesterday. So uh, again, some frustration on that front. Thanks, Eamon. All right, joining us now, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's a former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor. He serves on the boards of Illumina and Pfizer. He writes in his newest op-ed for The Wall Street Journal about the Trump coronavirus spread, writing it might have been avoided and that Mr. Trump and his team uh, aren't passive victims of bad luck and an aggressive uh, virus. We'll get to that in a second. But what do you know uh, just about uh, the, the current state of President Trump? In, in your view, because we've seen so, so many anecdotal uh, stories about people said, wow, I feel great. And then only to find out that the second week is when some of the really serious symptoms rise. Is, is it possible that that's what we're seeing in terms of uh, the president? We've heard, you know, he says, I feel like I could walk out of here. There's speculation that he might even go back to the White House uh, today. But knowing what we know, Scott, is that is that make sense? Did he get early enough intervention with some of that stuff from Desivere and, and, and the Regeneron to where he may not experience that that uh, what's not a favorable outcome that we've seen? Well, look, we hope so. And it's possible. We, we don't have a lot of information. He does seem to be what we would call a moderate patient. He has some oxygen requirements. There's a suggestion that he has pneumonia or infiltrates some kind of inflammatory change on his CT scan, his chest CT. They wouldn't put out the details, but they said it's consistent with what you would expect in a circumstance, which seemed to suggest that there's some infiltrates on that scan. Again, they wouldn't, they wouldn't tell us exactly what. So he probably would be in the moderate category right now, given his age and, and those findings. Now, he did get a lot of advanced treatment. I think that the Regeneron product is going to end up being a good product and hopefully will have made a difference in this case. Remdesivir introduced early should be 
more impactful. It is the case to your to your initial question that patients who do well this first week tend not to have that sort of second week, that inflammatory reaction. But there are exceptions. Um, there are patients who don't have a very serious course of the infection in that first viral response phase, that first week of the illness. And then they'll go on to have that post-viral inflammatory phase that we worry about. But, you know, the fact that he does look like he's improving this week and he hasn't had very severe illness this week does suggest that his odds of having a bad second week is lower. But Scott, they, I think, you know, we heard about Friday and, and supplemental oxygen. I, I've read in different places that maybe there was a drop in oxygen levels on Saturday uh, as well, which is, is closer. Also, as you said, they didn't say that the lung reading was normal. So that it, they said it was what you might expect, but they didn't say normal, which means maybe it could be some pneumonia. What, what about the dexamethasone? I thought is that that's not usually used uh, as a prophylactic, as, as a, something in advance of, of things happening, is it? Or what, what does that indicate about whether there, there's some type of um, you know, the more serious conditions that we've seen when steroids are called for. Yeah, so it's consistent with that he was, he's sort of in that moderate category. He has, he's desaturating, he has low O2 set, he does have some inflammatory changes on his lungs. Um, o, uh, the dexamethasone would be indicated in that setting. So dexamethasone is indicated for hospitalized patients who are requiring oxygen. So he, he might meet criteria just based on that alone. And their threshold for using it might be a little bit lower because the reason you don't use it typically is you want to give it to patients when they're having that inflammatory response, but you don't want to give it to them when they're still fighting the virus, wherein they're in that direct um, viral fighting phase of, of their response because the steroids themselves could perhaps diminish the body's ability to react to the virus to actually fight off the viral particles. You want to wait until we've, you've mounted a fight against the virus and now you're having those post-viral inflammatory changes. But given the fact they introduced remdesivir early, which is going to have direct activity on the virus, and given the fact they introduced the antibody early, which again will also have direct activity on the virus, they might have been a little bit more confident at pushing the steroids a little bit earlier because they said to themselves, you know, they don't need his immune system to do all the work fighting the virus because they've given them a lot of medicines that are going to do some of that work for them. Melissa? of these three treatments at the same time. Uh, remdesivir is a five-day course, typically. He's at the midpoint, basically, of this course of treatment, and at the same time, he's getting dexamethasone, which is usually used much later on, as you indicated. Uh, and if they use it now, does it have less of an impact later on if he truly needs it, is, is truly on supplemental oxygen, and, and has that inflammatory response? Probably not. I mean, it's hard to tell. We don't know because we don't have a lot of good data on these drugs longitudinally. We don't have them in, um, data on them in combination, but probably not. Uh, if he was having inflammatory changes, sort of post-viral inflammatory changes on his chest CT and requiring oxygen, introducing the dexamethasone should have a treatment effect. Again, the reason you don't want to introduce it too early is because if you're still mounting that, that immune response to the virus, then by introducing steroids early, you could inhibit that immune response. The steroids can actually suppress the ability to clear the virus. But given the fact that he was given all those other extraordinary treatments that are going to directly target the virus, again, you could push the steroids perhaps a little earlier. And that may be what they were thinking. In terms of the drugs themselves, there's no reason to believe that these drugs would interfere with the action of one another. Um, they should be synergistic. But again, we don't know because we haven't used them in combination. But I don't think that there was anything done here that isn't imprudent or looks risky. I think that they gave the president the available therapy that they had and were able to obtain that should be effective in helping him fight this infection.
go back to your article and, and maybe think a little bit about the lessons of this episode. And not to say the episode is over, but uh, I am genuinely, as I know so many people around this country, are rooting for the president. Uh, and also, I think, are starting to assume that he will get better. Uh, the question is uh, what the American public is going to think of COVID uh, when this episode is all over, based a, a little bit on what you were writing, uh, which is to say that clearly mistakes were made. Uh, but as he does get better and get better rapidly, it, it appears quickly. Now, they're throwing every drug uh, that they, they possibly can at him. I don't know if all those drugs are typically available. At least I know that most of those drugs are typically not available. At least some of them aren't available uh, to the public. How do you think the public is going to think about uh, the, the dangers of the, this virus as a result of, 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 of this situation? Well, look, I think it's going to reinforce the dangers of the virus and, and reinforce um, the fact that people are at risk of contracting it. They were taking steps to protect the president. He's still contracted it. Now, quite frankly, I don't think they took enough steps to protect the president. That was some of the essence of the op-ed I wrote. I think there's a lot more that the White House staff could have done. They had a system in place where they basically were depending on testing alone to keep the president safe because they weren't taking adequate measures inside the White House compound. And so if they were relying on testing alone to keep the virus out of the West Wing and out of the White House compound. They needed a zero fail testing regime. They didn't have it. Um, it was told to people in the White House that there were problems with the way they were using testing as a tool to try to prevent virus from getting into the White House compound and in and around the president. Uh, and they didn't really step that up. So I think they need to rethink the protocols around the president. The president didn't need to get infected. I'm pretty certain the president didn't want to get infected. He was not taking reckless risks, notwithstanding the things he said when he was out um, and notwithstanding some you know, people's perceptions. The president did not want to get COVID from everything I can glean and thought he was being protected based right. on the testing that was in place around him. Uh, Scott, though, there are questions about whether there were decisions made that were reckless uh, by the White House uh, over the past 72, if not more hours, including the decision to go to Bedminster, uh, the decision to uh, have that photo op yesterday where he drove in that car uh, filled with other Secret Service agents who, while wearing uh, N95 masks, by default put themselves at risk. How do you think about that and the message it sends? Well, look, I, I wouldn't have wanted a patient who's currently under my care um, and is in a serious condition um, to you know, go outside the hospital. I don't know what went on between the president uh, and his advisors around that, um, that episode yesterday. As far as the decision to go to Bedminster, I don't know the details of it, but you know, the president is, relies on people who are around him to advise him and make decisions about where he moves and when he moves. Uh, we sort of assume that the president's the one calling all these shots. I highly doubt that the president knew all the details of what was unfolding around Hope Hicks's illness and the various things they had on their itinerary and what the, what the medical guidance was and when he should get tested and when he should quarantine. Um, these aren't things that, you know, a principal would necessarily know unless he's being advised. And so I think if, if we really want to get to the bottom of how these decisions got made, made, I think we need to figure out who made these decisions. This probably isn't the time to do that. I'm not sure that they, they bear direct relevance on trying to get the president through this and frankly trying to get the nation through COVID because we're seeing a resurgence all around the country right now. What you've said this morning with what we're seeing uh, in terms of the markets, we saw a rally overnight in Asia. We're looking at a higher open here in the United States. Investors are assuming that perhaps the worst is behind the president, that his condition is improving. Do we have enough information to actually uh, make that conclusion at this point? I think we'll, we'll know by the end of this week, certainly, um, if the president's truly out of the woods and maybe by midweek. Um, he does seem to be improving or not getting worse. 
Uh, and as I said at the outset, in, in response to Joe's question, you know, if you do well in that first week, there's a better chance you're going to do well in that second week. Now, I've talked to a lot of doctors who care for COVID patients, and they do talk about older patients, uh, and the president is an older patient, who will be doing well that first week and still have that, that post-viral inflammatory response, that acute respiratory distress syndrome type of picture in the second week. And that's what we'd be worried about. But given the fact that he's on a good curve now, it's predictive that he's likely to remain on a good curve in the second week as well. But I think by midweek this week, we'll probably have a real good sense. And by the end of the week, certainly we'll have a very clear indication of where he is. Scott, are you concerned at all about a backlash against testing as a result of, of, of the positive tests that, that the president has had in his illness? And the reason I ask is I was talking to a CEO over the weekend who was considering testing who said, look, if, if the leader of the free world's bubble can, can get pierced, you know, how am I going to make this work? I'm not sure that that should be the lesson of this uh, experience, but I wonder whether you think it, it, it may very well be. I don't necessarily think so. They weren't really using effective testing at the White House. They were relying on the Binax now, the antigen-based test, as a sole test to try to screen people who are going to be around the president. That test used in an asymptomatic population might be 50 percent sensitive, maybe a little bit more. But it's not, it's not a zero-fail system if you don't want the virus to get into the compound. If you, look at, if you look at what businesses are doing when they introduce testing in schools, they don't rely on the testing as the sole mechanism to prevent infection in those environments. They use testing as one piece of an overall approach to trying to keep people safe. So they still require distancing and masking. I think testing used as a layered response to try to keep COVID out of a work environment, especially where people can't adequately socially distance, can be very effective. But you cannot say that testing is going to be 100% effective at preventing introduction unless you change the testing protocol. So unless you do things like require two tests, so maybe you require a test before people get to the White House compound, then you test them again. You use more sensitive machinery like the Cephe Gene Expert or a PCR-based machine. The Gene Expert would have been a good test. And we've talked about that many times on this show about the fact that the White House should have been using the Gene Expert given the way they were deploying uh, testing. They needed a more reliable uh, device. So there would be ways to use testing to get closer to a zero-fail system. And there's a lot of ways that businesses can use testing as part of a layered response. So, Scott, if the president goes, were to go back to the White House, I guess there'd be Secret Service agents. They just have to do the PPE. I think there's two in the car. I don't know if it's full of Secret Service agents. But, I mean, they're at risk. And that's unfortunate, obviously. But if he were to go back today to the White House, they'd have N95 masks. They'd have PPE. There may be plexiglass in the beast, too. I'm not really sure. But... I mean, that's what they do. He, they would, someone would have to drive him, right? I mean, that, I don't know whether a photo op is, is necessary, but that's what these guys do. And they, they would have to drive him back today if he went back. But it's un, do you think it's likely he goes back there today? I, I can't imagine. Do you? I, I don't know. I have no insight. Uh, it's possible he can go back to the White House because the White House, as Eamon said at the, at the um, top, the, the White House has pretty extraordinary medical facilities. I believe they have a CT scan machine on the White House compound as well. So there's a lot of medical care they can deliver. I think they wouldn't bring him back to the White House. Or if I was counseling them, I would counsel them not to bring him back to the White House if they think that there was any risk that he would bounce back to the hospital. You wouldn't want to have to bring him back to the White House right. and then move him back again to the hospital. So I think if they bring him back to the White House, it's, it's an indication they feel he can stay there. You know, as far as people around the president, they can protect themselves. I mean, doctors are exposed to COVID all the time in, in emergency departments and other other areas. They wear proper protective equipment. They're trained on how to use it. Right. So it is possible for the people around the president um, to protect themselves. They need to be doing that. And, you know, people around other principals now who may be at risk of contracting COVID because of the exposures um, that, that's at that Saturday event and maybe also the Friday event, there might have been two introductions. 
they also need to be given proper protective equipment and be able to protect themselves if those principals aren't going to be quarantining. All right. Thanks, Scott. We'll see you in a while. Next on Squawk Pod, unpacking one part of the president's COVID treatment, Regeneron's antibody cocktail not yet approved by the FDA, the CEO of Regeneron. This is all very complicated because it's real lives at stake. Yes, we want to give this if we can and we help them. But of course, we want to get definitive evidence. So it's a tough act to balance. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Today's anchors are Joe Kernan, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Melissa Lee. In the first hours after testing positive for coronavirus, President Trump received an experimental treatment for COVID-19 on Friday. We've got some breaking news. Let's get to Shepard Smith with the details. Hey, Shep. Wilf, hello. We have new information on the president at the White House this afternoon. This headline was a key point on the timeline of the developing story. It was the first news the public received about how the president of the United States was being medically treated for the novel coronavirus. And after the diagnosis, quoting from his doctor now, as a precautionary measure, he received a single eight gram dose of Regeneron's polyclonal antibody cocktail, uh, a cocktail of antibodies to try to boost his immune system and other things. It goes on, he completed the infusion without incident. Developed by biotech company Regeneron, it was actually a monoclonal antibody cocktail the president was given. The White House physician's initial memo mistakenly described it as polyclonal. These are big words. Monoclonal antibodies are antibodies that have been genetically engineered into new medicines. Let's do a little science here, which was not my major. Antibodies are proteins your immune system makes to fight bacteria. They are your body's defenders against illness. Regeneron has produced several monoclonal antibodies in labs since being founded in 1988, including in 2014, when the technology was used to develop an effective treatment for Ebola. Senior health and science reporter Meg Terrell walks us through the president's current treatment protocol for COVID-19. We learned, of course, on Friday that the president had been given the experimental antibody cocktail from Regeneron. Uh, And then Friday evening, his doctor said he started a five-day course of remdesivir, which of course is an antiviral from Gilead that does have an EUA, an emergency use authorization for treatment of COVID-19. Then Saturday, we got the news that he started the steroid dexamethasone, and that was in response to two drops in his oxygen levels. Now, guys, there's a lot of focus on the use of this medicine because it does imply he has more severe COVID-19. And in fact, doctors that I spoke with over the weekend point out that an oxygen level of 94% or less, which is Doctors said uh, the president reached twice in the last few days does constitute severe COVID-19. Now, what do uh, the data say about how well these drugs work? Well, let's start with the Regeneron antibody cocktail. We only saw the results from that clinical trial on Tuesday of last week, guys. It's been less than a week since we saw this, but it did show in this trial of 275 people, it reduced viral levels. 
um, in non-hospitalized patients and shortened uh, the time to have symptoms. Now, remdesivir, uh, Gilead's drug, shortened recovery time in hospitalized patients to 11 days from 15, and now is typically given when patients go to the hospital, guys. Now, in terms of dexamethasone, that's the steroid drug, an old steroid, and showed in a trial in the UK called the Recovery Trial to reduce uh, deaths by a third in patients on ventilators and by a fifth uh, for those on oxygen. But it is not recommended for patients early in the course of the disease where it could actually potentially cause harm, guys. Uh, but in this situation, doctors say remdesivir plus dexamethasone is what you would get at any hospital when you're hospitalized for COVID-19 if your disease is severe enough. The addition, of course, of the Regeneron antibody cocktail is unknown. Uh, we haven't seen data on these three drugs together before, and President Trump, one of only a handful of patients in the world probably to be treated this way. Today on Squawk Box, we heard from Regeneron CEO Dr. Leonard Schleifer to discuss his company's experimental antibody treatment. Let's get back to Meg. Can you tell us about how your antibody drug aims to help with the virus? And given what we've heard about the president over the weekend, do you think it's working? Yes. Well, thanks, uh, Meg, Joe, for having me on. And before I start, let me say that how proud Team Regeneron, uh, all of our employees are, to have worked so hard to get to a point where we can help the president and hopefully many other people. And that hard work was done right in the epicenter uh, of the pandemic in the early going uh, where our main headquarters are in New York. Um, look, uh, we think that this is nothing um, particularly uh, earth shattering in its perspective. That is, we're just trying to imitate and help an individual um, help their immune system win this battle, win this race against this virus. Um, and what happens normally is it is a race. That virus gets going, starts uh, replicating, lots of viruses floating around, and the immune system tries to get in there and knock it down. Um, and by the way, that's what vaccines are supposed to do. They're supposed to give the immune system a head start in that race. Well, we don't have vaccines yet. I hope we will. Uh, and early on in the course of this disease, the virus can get ahead of the immune system. Uh, and we think that giving that antibody makes a lot of sense because it's just doing what the immune system is supposed to do but hasn't quite done yet. Uh, and that's uh, what we hope happened with the president. You ask me, did we help him? I'd like to think so. It's impossible to know with one patient, but the evidence we have from hundreds of patients thus far is that if you give this drug early in the disease, uh, course of the disease, uh, particularly in people who might have a high virus or maybe uh, they don't have enough, enough an immune response or the appropriate immune response, you can really help them clear that virus. And this disease is really all about the virus. If you look at hospitalized patients, they have a lot of virus, they have a bad outcome or they're at risk for a bad outcome. If, if you knock that virus down naturally, or we hope with our antibodies, we hope to change that. Well, Dr. Schleifer, I mean, if you can walk us through what the last few days, the last week has really been like for you. I mean, to our knowledge, this is something that's never happened. And in history that a president would receive uh, an experimental drug just three days after we saw the first results on it. What was it like to get that call? Were you hesitant at all? Did it wake you up? What, what can you tell us? Yeah, I'd like to say it was just another day at the office, uh, and it wasn't. We have done this before. He's not the first person to get the drug on, under this so-called compassionate use. A lot of people have said, why would you do it? It's so risky. You've got to protect the company. What if things go bad? You know, as a physician and, and, and as leaders of healthcare company, we don't view that as our job to protect ourselves. Our job is to protect patients and the patients we serve. 
Uh, and when we got the call, um, the White House uh, physician and staff seemed pretty informed. Uh, they obviously had role-played scenarios, what might happen if uh, somebody need, uh, got sick and needed treatment. Um, they asked if we would uh, be involved. We told them if the FDA was on board, uh, we would be pleased to try and help. And we thought it made sense. And what was that process like? Can you help us understand the timeline for when you got the call and then the FDA gave the green light to, to administer this? Yeah, I'd like to get into the details, but you know, one of the things about protecting patients is we protect their privacy. Um, I'm really not at liberty to talk about the details of the president's case. That's a, that's something, that information is owned by the president and his medical team. I'm sure they'll be happy to tell you about it. Our role was to provide information, to provide understanding. Um, I've spoken with their physicians. George Ancopoulos has spoken with them. They have a team of experts. Um, we're available. Uh, and when they wanted the product, we made it available. Uh, and we're glad to see he's doing so well. And just one more question on that. You know, the latest that we heard from the president's team of physicians is that the antibody was administered, you know, they were on day two, essentially on Saturday. That implies, you know, very early, at least Friday morning. Is that consistent with your timeline? Yeah, it's a nice way of asking the question, Matt. But once again, I can't... Um, get into the particulars of when, what, the hows, the details of the president's treatment. It's better left for the president and his medical staff. I was going to follow up on that, but I'll switch gears since it doesn't seem to me uh, that we're getting through to you in terms of the timeline questions, Dr. Schleifer. Um, there are some I assumption. understand them. I understand the question. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> sort of, did you get the phone call at 2 a.m.? I mean, the, the president tweets at 1 a.m. that he's diagnosed. Yeah. All right, I'll let it. I'll let it go there. Um, there is some assumption, at least in the in the analyst community, that uh, the president's use of this cocktail is tacit approval by the FDA for emergency use authorization. Is that a correct assumption? Is that the way you view it? And if you do get EUA, are you able to ramp up production quickly? Yeah. So let me break that uh, question down into several parts. Um, first of all, uh, the, whether the president got it or didn't get it. Uh, I don't think really is the question here. Um, that may be a question that he wants to address, but as far as the FDA goes, they have a set of uh, standards. So let's parse out what are those standards. First of all, it has to be an emergency declared under the Food and Drug Act, and obviously, uh, I think everybody would understand that uh, we're, this pandemic was certainly in an emergency. Uh, there have to be inadequate treatments. Um, it's sort of QED. You've got several hundred thousand people have died. Uh, in the United States. Um, we don't have adequate treatments, or nor do we have adequate prevention uh, for this virus yet. So that's for sure. And then the, the evidence has uh, to suggest that the drug may uh, uh, improve the outcome or help prevent the, the bad complications. And I think that that standard of may or might is quite different than the evidentiary standard that the FDA normally uses, that it's proven 1,000%, you know, we haven't proven anything 1,000%. There are more trials going on. But I think the, the evidence that virus is the problem in this disease, more virus is bad for you, and we can lower that virus, that's a powerful and compelling argument that we would fit that standard that, you, we, that our drug may or might be beneficial. And then the last consideration, uh, I think, um, by the FDA is what is the risk-benefit-reward here? Um, we know it may be beneficial, but are the risks too great? Do we know enough information that it's safe? And I have to say, um, we have lots of information. First of all, monoclonal antibodies have been given 
to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people as a class. And they're one of the safest classes of drugs uh, we have out there because they're very specific in what they do. And they've been used in infectious diseases. They've been used in infectious diseases and passive transfer, convalescent plasma. And frankly, our own breakthrough in being able to save lives in the treatment of Ebola uh, is an example of using monoclonal antibodies to attack a virus that can kill you. In addition, we have uh, animal data, cell data, uh, primate data in monkeys uh, that you can give this um, antibody cocktail before um, somebody gets the disease and prevents it. And we should talk a little bit about that. And you can give it after the monkeys get the disease and have a much a very important beneficial on their effect. And finally, we have the human data from our trials. So if you add it all up, there's quite a, a, a robust package of information to suggest that this product may well be beneficial. Um, and, and I think the risks uh, are very low. So I and, think it makes sense. And Len, the proof of, uh, of concept is pretty exciting too. I, it, it's a cocktail, so you're worried that, that maybe part of the spike protein mutates if you only give one antibody, so you got two. Could you use three if you needed it? Would, would that even be better? And, and why can't we do this with a normal coronavirus, like the, the common cold or something like that, that, as a proof of concept? Yeah, so look, Joe, of course, as usual, you ask great questions. Um, um, whether or not, we use three for Ebola, um, and it's a little bit of a tour de force because you've, you've got to get this spike protein sticking out there. And you've got to get two antibodies to be able to bind this thing at the same time. Otherwise, there's no point, and they have to bind them in different places. And we worked very hard. We could have taken uh, what would have been maybe a, a passed away, a shorter cut, if you will, by doing one antibody. But you do raise the point that our scientists were very concerned that if you just use one antibody, that virus could mutate, um, and then um, uh, and you would have a problem not only wouldn't your antibody work anymore, you might change the whole dynamic of how a vaccine would work, et cetera. Having two, um, we believe that you really minimize the chance of what one would call viral escape. Now, this is a whole different um, animal, which we probably don't have time to get into, in terms of uh, the regular old cold viruses and how fast they and how rapidly they can change. And so this approach might not work as well. Here, the spike protein is really the essential Part because if that spike protein doesn't bind uh, to the uh, this so-called ACE receptor, uh, ACE2, on, on the cell surface, then this virus is really not going to do much damage at all, if any at all. So a little bit different biology. We know a lot about this, still learning, but we do know a lot about it. Two antibodies make sense. If we could squeeze a third one on there, uh, it might be good, but I'm not sure technically whether that can be done. Dr. Schleifer, it's Meg Terrell again. You know, I want to ask you about this use uh, in compassionate use, this access to drugs outside of clinical trials. I talked with uh, your chief scientific officer, George Ankopoulos, on Friday. He said you have given it in a handful of situations that way, but really, of course, the priority is to have supply for clinical trials to further prove how this drug works and for whom. You mentioned the treatment setting, or, sorry, the prevention setting is another area where you're testing this. But Dr. Schleifer, over the weekend, you know, about 90,000 people in the United States were diagnosed with COVID-19. All of those people heard the president was treated with your drug first. I can only imagine the compassionate use requests you're now receiving. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, it, it, it's a very tough situation. Um, we have tried to take a principled approach until there is a broader authorization. Basically, if you can get into a clinical trials, 
we've tried to encourage people to go into well-controlled, well-monitored, carefully uh, collected data in a clinical trial setting. Of course, the downside of that is that you have a one in three chance of getting placebo, but you are in a well-controlled setting where you monitored carefully, et cetera. Um, giving that to the, to the president, asking somebody like the president to go into a clinical trial just wasn't practical. So giving it um, to him or to others who might not be able or don't qualify for clinical trial is the right use of compassionate use. That's for small numbers of people for these exceptions. But we want everybody to be potentially able to benefit. We understand we don't make that decision. This is a decision that the FDA has to make. We hope they'll follow the regs. We think we meet a lot of those standards, but and all of them, that it might work, the risk-benefit is right, it's truly an emergency, um, and we can continue the clinical trials, frankly, even under an emergency youth authorization, as we've done in other jurisdictions outside the United States and so forth. But this is all very complicated because it's real lives at stake. If it's my loved one or your loved one, a family member, somebody you know very well, maybe not Joe, he's always mean to me, but if it's somebody you really care about, yes, we want to give this if we can, and we help them. But of course, we want to get definitive evidence. So it's a tough act to balance. To that end, Dr. Schleifer, have you gotten requests for compassionate use uh, from the White House for others who've been since diagnosed with COVID in the White House or for those diagnosed uh, for, with COVID in, in Congress? Yeah, I'm not going to talk about individual requests because we're technically, we're not allowed to talk about um, uh, we would never even have mentioned the president if they hadn't decided to go uh, uh, make his treatment uh, known. Um, I will say we have gotten other requests and we're dealing with them on a case-by-case -case basis, trying to do this in a principled way. If you're an essential member of government and you have to conduct the, the people's business and the continuity of government and you can't get to a clinical trial, we'll take that into account. Um, I think that, you know, this is a, this is a, 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 a tough uh, course to navigate. We're trying to do our best. We're going to work with the FDA as well. It takes both the approval of the, F of the FDA and of the company to allow compassionate use uh, to be con conducted. Dr. Schleifer, thank you for being with us and walking us through this and really what is a historic situation. You know, thank thanks for explaining it to us. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. That's the podcast for today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, wherever you listen. Tweet us your thoughts at Squawk CNBC, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.